I, uh, I told you last week that we're celebrating 25 years uh, of marriage and took my wife to the zoo. And I have a little story about the zoo later on. That's what she wanted to do. Uh, she wanted to go to the Columbus Zoo, and we had a great time at the Columbus Zoo. So I'll, I have a really funny story I think you'll enjoy about that a little bit later. I don't, I don't normally take a break from a sermon series that we are on. Of course, we've been working through the Minor Prophets. And I don't normally break from whatever series we're doing to talk about American holidays like, you know, like Father's Day. Uh, but I've been thinking a lot about some of the things we've been studying in the book of Amos. And one of the verses that I was reminded of was in chapter 4. And the timing of it was just the way it worked out. But in chapter 4, verse 1, Amos starts off the sermon by addressing the cows of Bashan. And, and it fell on Mother's Day of all times. And they were, he was addressing women. He was addressing these women that were oppressing the poor. He was addressing women at the time that were not treating people uh, the, the right way. And they were, they were just crushing people. And in that verse, it says not only were they not treating people the right way, but he quotes them by saying, bring us another drink. He says that these ladies uh, are saying to their husbands, and, and the way that it's written, they're, they're drunk, and they're telling their husbands to, to bring them another, another drink. And it just paints this really bad picture of some things in the culture that were happening at the time. And I've been thinking a lot, maybe you have too, about Israel, about our current culture. Uh, how is it that Israel had become so rotten? I've been asking myself a lot, uh, that question a lot during this series. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just at the government level, and it was, they were corrupt at the government level really bad, badly, but it wasn't just at the government level, it was, it was at the family level as well. And, and I, I, I read that, uh, that description in, in various ways throughout the book, and I wonder how that happened. How did things get so insanely Rotten, And of course, if we go back in history, we can see that the original King Jeroboam shares a great deal of blame for that. Um, whenever there was the national divorce between uh, Judah and Israel, and Israel established its own country, King Jeroboam didn't want his people to go back to Jerusalem to worship because he was afraid they would get homesick, and he didn't want to lose power. And so he decided he would have uh, two temples built in Israel, and he said it was for their convenience that he built those. Okay, fine, but uh, he didn't build temples to worship God. He built temples to worship Baal. He disconnected his people, not only from their home country. He disconnected them from their history. He disconnected them from God, all because he wanted to hold on to his power but it wasn't just the government's fault that the culture began to rot. The religious leadership in the country wasn't teaching the truth of God's word either. In fact, uh, when we fast forward to Amos chapter 7, which is where we're at in our study of the book, we see that the high priest, his name was Amaziah, the high priest... Uh, here's the message of Amos. Now, he's supposed to be leading people uh, towards God, not away from God. But instead, this is how he responds. So this is Amos chapter 7, verse 10. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. And this is what he said. Amos is hatching a plot against you right here 
on your very doorstep. And what he is saying is intolerable. He's saying Jeroboam will soon be killed and the people of Israel will be sent away into exile. And then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. So he sends this message to Jeroboam, try to get him in trouble. And then he sends uh, this order to Amos to get out. Get out of here, you prophet. Go on back to the land of Judah and earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. So yeah, Jeroboam shares a lot of the blame for what had been going on, but so, does, so, so do men like Amaziah for how rotten things were in Israel. And we get that. I think if you've been studying along with me in this series, you understand that. But on Father's Day, I'm wondering this question. I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about the blame of how things got to the way they were. But I'm wondering, where were the godly husbands in this story? Where, where are the godly dads in Israel? Just because the government is corrupt, just because the, the government is rotten and evil, just because those who are supposed to proclaim and teach truth are not doing so, were there no men left in Israel that would have claimed the words of Joshua and said, you know what, the government's corrupt, the religious leaders are corrupt, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Were there no men left in Israel that would say that? I, I wonder if that's perhaps why God called a prophet out of another country to take this message to Israel. I love the response that Amos gives back to uh, Amaziah in, in verse 14. Amos replies back, I'm not a professional prophet. I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd. I, I take care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. And then again, he, he reiterates the judgment that is, is coming because they were rotten. The whole country had rotted uh, morally, ethically. It was, it was just a rotten place. And, and I read all of that, and I think about that on Father's Day, and I, th I think that on this Father's Day, we need to be reminded just how important dads are, especially dads who are trying to live a Jesus-centered life. We had a, a census here in the United States done recently, and according to the 2022 U.S. Census, so that's pretty current, 18.4 million children, that's one in four children in the United States are living in a home where the dad is not present, where the father's not there. And according to the research done by the National Fatherhood Initiative, there's consequences to that. What they have discovered through research is that when a child is raised in a father-absent home, they are four more times likely to experience poverty, more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to commit crime and go to prison, more likely to become pregnant as a teenager, more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, more likely to drop out of school, and they've seen the contrast on the other side of that. 
As they study these things, they found that children with involved fathers, they, they have this strong foundation and they are at much lower risk of these negative outcomes. So people that actually study these things have found these things statistically significant. And yet many in our American culture seem to believe that fathers are expendable, that they are unnecessary. Many in our country have bought into the the Marxist and, and socialist philosophies that desire to corrupt and destroy not only religion, but the family. And, and why? Why do they want to do that? Well, it's the same reason that King Jeroboam did the things that he did thousands of years ago. It's all about power. It's all about control. And unfortunately, people buy into it. And so, yeah, you, you can cast a, a great deal of blame for our rotten culture on those who lead. They deserve a lot of that blame. And even those who should preach truth but instead have chosen to reject it. But I don't believe that our families, that your family, that my family, I I just don't believe our families are hopelessly doomed to be corrupted by evil. We don't have to be like that. I think what we're seeing happen in in our country right now is just a powerful reminder of just how important fathers really are, especially dads who want to live a Jesus-centered life. Now, I understand that our culture has decided at large, not everyone in our culture, I don't think we believe this, but many in our culture uh, have have just decided that the God-designed model for the family is stupid, it's, it's outdated, some even say it's oppressive. To which I would respond respectfully, okay, how's that working out for you? Not well. Is the rejection of God's design for marriage, God's design for the family, is that making our family stronger? Is it making our lives better? I mean, we've, we've been at this Uh, rejection of God experiment for quite a while now in our country. Surely by now, if it was a good plan, you could statistically demonstrate the benefits. But what do we see? We see the opposite, don't we? So I'll I'll just say, I, I I, I don't have much interest or confidence in those who say that that God's design for marriage, that God's design for parenting, God's design for dads is stupid or unlightened or oppressive. My wife and I are flawed people just like you. But we are quite satisfied with God's, in fact, more than satisfied with God's design for the family. And I'll just say, honestly, there are plenty of days, plenty of days where, where Angie and I, we fall short of that standard. We fall short of God's perfect standard for the family, but we keep coming back to it because we know it works. If you're not familiar with God's design for the family, if that's something new to you and you're like, what, what would that look like? Um, in the New Testament, I'll give you a snapshot. Colossians chapter three. So we're gonna kind of develop this thought this morning together. God's design for marriage, God's design for the family, God's design for dads, husbands. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 begins with this snapshot of, of, of a family that is based on God's design. It starts with wives submit to your husbands. It has to do with following the leadership of their husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Let me read it again because we're talking about Father's Day. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children or they will become discouraged. So in terms of authority, God has given the responsibility of leadership to the husband, to the father. God has designed the family in, in such a way that, that wives and children need men to lead. This is the, the ideal that we should continually come back to, that we should desire this to be the standard, this should be the norm, not the exception. Why? Because this is what works best. And if you're getting a little squirmy in your chair thinking uh, something like, uh, oh, I, I, don't, I, I think Pastor Mark doesn't believe that single parents love Jesus. That's not at all what I'm saying. It's not hard at all to find examples of single parents that absolutely love Jesus and they're absolutely doing the best they possibly can. And it's not hard to find examples of wives who are living Jesus-centered lives, even if their husbands are not. But that does not mean that we have to reject the idea of a God-designed ideal. Just because we may experience something less than ideal does not mean that we should call it as good or better than the ideal. We know this to be true in other areas of life. In the, in the business world, business leaders think in terms of best practices. That's a term that's very common in the business world. And it simply means that when, uh, whenever, whatever business you're doing, whatever job you're doing, there is a best way to do it. There's lots of ways to do the job. You could do it, let's say, 10 different ways, but there's a best way, and business leaders want to know what is the best way, the most efficient way, the, the way that uh, uh, helps with uh, employee morale. There's all kinds of factors that go into figuring out best practices, the most ideal way to do the job. They have conferences about this. There are books written about this. They have people whose sole job is to go into a business and evaluate whether or not they are uh, doing the job with best practices. So imagine you go through all of that and you figure out, okay, this is the job that we're doing and uh, there's lots of ways to do it, but this is the best way, the most ideal way. This is what we expect, uh, how we expect this job to be done. And, okay, this is the way to do it. But then you don't do it. You, you don't do the job that way. You don't do business that way. What you wind up with is like the Starbucks that I stopped at recently. I've been in, in Starbucks all over the country, all over the world, and I've never been in one like I was just in recently. 
It was dirty. There was, there was garbage on the floor, things you could tell hadn't been wiped up for quite some time, even on the counter where you would get uh, your, you know, the stuff that you get. And uh, they had one of these refrigerators that had like to-go drinks and some snacks in it that you could grab. And it was, it was just leaking onto the floor. Nobody, nobody, nobody cleaned it up. They just stuck a cone in the middle of it. I guess you just step over the water. Uh, and, and when I gave my order, I've never seen this. I didn't even know this existed. But if you go into a, a Starbucks, they have the, the menus up top, and, and they have all these weird uh, phrases or whatever. And, and what I noticed was they had no idea where their products were. No idea. And the menus actually... Didn't, never saw anyone do this before. Their menus lift up. They're also cupboards. Did you know that? Probably not, because you've never seen anyone do it. They have, they have product in behind the menus, and they're like, uh, nope, uh, nope. Uh. They had no idea where their products were. They were so disorganized. It was dirty. It was disorganized. It was, it was gross. They were not running this business with best practices. Now, were they still selling coffee? Yeah, I needed some caffeine. I was willing to put up with that. But it was not run with best practices. Was it still a Starbucks? Yeah, it was still a Starbucks. But it was not as good. It was not better than the ideal. And God's design for marriage, God's design for the family, according to what he's revealed to us in his word, is when a godly man leads his family in a godly way. That's the best practice for leadership. That's the ideal that we should desire, that we should see as the standard and the norm because that's what works best. But I think that brings us to uh, an important question. When we talk about godly leadership, what does that mean? What does that, what does that look like? I know there have been uh, some in, in the past, and I hope it's not you, but there have been some who have taken some of the verses that we're going to look at today and about godly leadership, men leading their families, and they have applied them in just terrible ways. And, and there have been some who've said, oh, I, I'm to be the head of the house. That means uh, some type of military-style leadership. We're going to keep the troops in line. Or men who are tyrannical dictators and they demand blind and unwavering obedience to which I would wonder, how's that working out for you? Probably, probably not well, because that's not best practices. We just read from uh, Colossians, and it talks about never treat your wife harshly. Don't treat your children harshly. So right off the bat, even within the standard of giving the responsibility of leading, there are, there are clear instructions on how to lead and, and being a tyrannical dictator, treating your family harshly is not part of those instructions. So if we want to understand the ideal style of leadership, we do need to look to God's word, not just uh, hear uh, that uh, men are the head of the house and then assign our own meaning to what that is. Let's find out what God's expectation, his best practices for godly leadership. I read a book back in, uh, this past winter called The Inspirational Leader, and its main audience is for business leaders. Really good book. But what I, uh, what I found fascinating about it is I'm reading through the different principles for leadership 
from a book that is targeting business leaders. I'm reading it and I'm like, that's a biblical principle. That's a biblical principle. That's, and, and what we're seeing is those who are looking for best practices in the leadership world, even in the business world, are finding that the biblical principles of leadership work best. It's almost as if God has wisdom that we can learn from. If you are a married man, as we look through these things this morning, I'm just going to challenge you as I challenge my own heart. Listen carefully. Listen carefully to how God wants us to lead. And let's commit ourselves to leading well. We're not perfect. We, men are knuckleheads. We know that. We're not always going to hit the target, but, but we need to shoot t- towards the standard that God has set for us. And if you're a young man here who maybe will one day be a husband, one day be a dad, then please pay careful attention on what God expects of us to be a godly leader and work really hard to become a man who is a godly leader. If you're a young lady who will one day be a wife, perhaps one day be a mom, my challenge this morning is listen carefully to what you hear and, and do not settle for anything less than a young man uh, that you would be interested in who is, uh, don't settle for anything less than someone who wants to be, who is becoming a godly leader. You, de- you don't deserve anything less than that. You might, you might say, oh, but Pastor Mark, he's so cute. He's so cute. Maybe one day he'll love Jesus. Yeah, maybe. You deserve better than that. Don't, don't settle for less. And if you are a married woman and you have a husband who genuinely wants to be a godly leader, again, we're knuckleheads and we, we, we fall short way often, way more often than we would like to. We know that. But if you have a husband who's trying to lead in the ways that you're going to hear this morning, would you just tell him that you appreciate that, that you're cheering him on, that you're rooting him on and supporting him in that? There's an expanded version of some of these things from Colossians in Ephesians chapter 5. Well, let's look at this together. Ephesians chapter 5. As we think about what it looks like to be a godly leader. In verse 22, it starts off with wives, again, uh, following the leadership, submitting to your husbands as to the Lord. And it, it, I love the explanation there. The husband is the head of his wife. Christ is the head of the church. So the idea here is that the husband is following the leadership of Christ and wives are then able to follow the leadership not only of Jesus but uh, of their husbands. Um, But then look at verse 25. Husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her. That's a high level of sacrificial love. If you fast forward down to the end of that chapter, he repeats it. Again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And then when you get into chapter 6, children, obey your parents. Uh, This is the right thing to do. Look at verse 4. This is a, a repetition of what we saw in Colossians. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. 
Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So we see this, this picture of the ideal design for marriage. There's some instruction there in chapter 6 about being a dad. But I hope you didn't gloss over. I tried to emphasize it. The first most important best practice of godly leadership is love. It's love. Godly leaders lead with love. Godly husbands lead with love. Godly dads lead with love. And you'll notice as that description, just like Christ loved the church, what did Christ do for us? He died for us. He laid his life down for us. We talk about sacrificial love. It's one that protects. It's a love that cares for not just the physical needs of his family, but also the spiritual and emotional well-being of his wife, of his family. And we're going to talk about some other best practices of leadership, but if, guys, listen, if we don't get this one right, all the other stuff we're going to talk about this morning will fall short. We have to get this one right. I'll show you what I mean. Let's say that you are a, a dad that works really hard, you're a husband that works really hard, and you provide for your family. You provide for their physical needs. They lack nothing. They have everything that they need, maybe even everything that they want. But let's imagine that uh, although you may be fulfilling that part of, uh, of, of good leadership provision, you're never around. And you're working two, three jobs. You're just so committed to that particular job that you're just working everything you can possibly work. Uh, and, and you have no time to spend with your family. Or you're working so hard and, and you're so uh, stressed out all the time that it's just, it's always affecting your mood. And, and you're not able emotionally, spiritually to give your best to your wife. You're not emotionally or uh, spiritually able to give your best to your kids, but they have everything they need. They have all the stuff they want. Do you see how very quickly that falls short? If they don't have your love, it's going to fall short of what they actually need from you as a husband, what they actually need from you as a dad. Love is the most important thing that a dad or a husband can provide for his family. Love is the foundation. Everything we're going to talk about this morning is built on that. Think about discipline. Uh, a, a godly father will provide, not just physical needs, uh, but they will provide discipline. Well, Ephesians 6, 4 gives us a reminder as far as what that discipline is supposed to look like. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger by the way that you treat them. So it's not a harsh discipline. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about discipline. And it gives us some uh, insight into the discipline of God himself. In chapter 12, verse 7, as you endure this divine discipline from God, our Father, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Children, whoever heard of a child who's never disciplined by its father? Now, I'm sure that happens, right? Maybe you grew up that way. 
So it happens, but it's not supposed to be the standard. It shouldn't be the norm. The norm should be that the father provides discipline for his children. In verse 8, he switches back to our relationship with God. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate. You're not really his children at all. And then back to our earthly relationship. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. And I want you to hear that, guys. We're doing the best that we can. Now, that doesn't mean we get lazy. It doesn't mean we make excuses or rationalize uh, falling short and say, well, it's okay. I'm doing the best I can. We genuinely need to be intentional about giving our best to our wives, giving our best to our children. Are we going to fall short of hitting the mark every time? Yes. But we get back up and we keep moving towards the standard that God has set for us. Doing the best they knew how. But here's the example. God's discipline is always good. It's always good for us. It's always discipline over the right thing in the right measure for the right amount of time. God's discipline never misses the mark. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. We know that. But afterward, there's a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. As you read that, as you read Ephesians 6, and you read uh, what we saw in Colossians, it becomes very evident that the key to ideal discipline is love. Love motivates this desire to discipline instead of just ignoring our kids. Eh, just let them act however they, however they want, right? That's not love. When... Um, when we were at the, at the zoo, uh, a lot of kids running around the zoo. Uh, I think my wife and I might have been the only couple there. I don't know. There was a lot of kids running around. And they were having a, a good time. And there was one of the exhibits in, uh, in the Africa section. And it had this airplane. And it looked really cool. It did look cool. And all the kids wanted to get into the airplane. Uh, which you can imagine, they were very excited. Let's get in the airplane. But I, I saw, I heard parents saying, no, no, there's a line. There's a line. You need, to, you need to get in the line. Why? Because they don't figure that out on their own. They need to be taught. They need to be trained. We don't just pop out knowing how to operate in polite society. Someone has to teach us these things. And love is what keeps not only us motivated to teach our children to operate in polite society and, and, and how to love God and how to serve God and others. But love is also what keeps that discipline from becoming too harsh, from becoming abusive. It's what helps us remember that discipline is a, it's supposed to be about training, not just uh, yelling at kids because they're getting on our nerves. It's supposed to be about training our children to love Jesus and live Jesus-centered lives. We see that in Ephesians 6. Uh, Ryan read to us this morning from Proverbs 22. Now, Train your children in the things of the Lord so that when they get old, they won't depart from it. Deuteronomy, I, 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 if you would, open your Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I think this is such an important 
passage to just be reminded of. Maybe you've read it before. I think it's good to be reminded. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. He's talking about uh, living by the standards of God, living by His, um, his statutes, and uh, with all of our hearts, all of our, all of our strength, all of our minds, giving our whole selves to God. And then he says, and you need to teach that to your kids. Verse 7, repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home. Talk about them when you're on the road. Talk about it when you go to bed. Talk about it when you get up. Tie it on your hands. Wear it on your forehead. As a reminder, write it on the doorposts of your house. It sure sounds as if God wants us to teach and train our children to know him, to love him, and to serve him. I, I've heard this uh, throughout the years, and if you have said this, if it's come out of, of your lips, then I'm about to offend you. I have heard people say, I don't want to force my kids to, in some type of religion, right? That's what they, they usually use that word. I don't want to force my kids uh, to go to church. I don't want to force my kids. They have to figure it out on their own. That's what they say. They'll figure it out on their own. I want them to decide. Yes, children do have, we can't, we can't force our children to fall in love with Jesus. They have to make a decision to trust Christ as their personal Savior. That is true. But this idea that we're just supposed to let them figure it out on their own is stupid. We don't do it in any other place in life. It's dumb parenting. If, uh, if you're, look at a piano, and you want your children, maybe uh, to, they are, have some interest in the piano, we don't say to them, oh, if they want to learn the piano, they'll figure it out on their own. You don't do that. You, you, you have to get an instrument, and you have to uh, provide training for that. Those of you who are into sports, uh, when, when my kids were growing up and interested in sports, I didn't just say, hey, go out in the yard and figure it out. You want to play baseball? You want to play football? Good luck to you. No, you go out and you show them. You train them uh, how to throw a ball, how to catch a ball, how to do these things. We don't, we don't operate that way in anything else when it comes to our kids. So this idea that, oh, they'll just let them, let them figure it out on their own. It's not biblical. And it's not even good common sense when it comes to parenting this, this picture is one of, we are talking about it constantly. Yes, they have to make a decision. You can't, you can't save your children from hell on your own. They need to make that choice to trust Jesus. But we can do everything we possibly can to teach them who Jesus is and why he died on the cross for their sins and what kind of difference he makes in our lives now, we can make sure that they are uh, here and, and we don't just you know, drop, dump them off and head off to Walmart or something. That we're, we're, This is the normal thing that we do. This is who we are. Sounds intentional. Sounds hard. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, it is. But love is what helps keep us motivated. Love is what helps keep us focused on leading and training our families. How to love and serve God. Of course, add to that, it's, it's really hard to lead our families to love God. It's really hard to lead our families to serve God if we don't first set the example. 
for what that looks like in our, in our own lives. There's this passage in 1 Timothy that's directed at leaders, godly leaders within the local church. But I think it's, I think it's super helpful to us as, as men within our, our homes. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, is, uh, Paul is laying out instructions for qualifications of leadership within the local church. Uh, listen to how it's being described. It's a, a man who is, whose life is above reproach. Well, what's that about? That's a good example. He's faithful to his wife. He exercises self-control. He lives wisely. He's got a good reputation. He's not a heavy drinker. He's not violent. He's, he's gentle. He's not quarrelsome. He's not in love with money. He manages his family well. He has children who respect him and obey him. Right? The, now, again, this is directed at leadership within the local church, but, boy, that's a, that's a pretty good picture of what it looks like to be a godly leader that I think we can and should apply in our everyday lives, especially when it comes to, you know, as a, as a husband and as a dad. Leading with love means that we provide for our families, not just physical needs, but their emotional and spiritual needs, that we care about those things. We're invested in, in, their, in, in their whole self that will have those conversations. How, how is your heart? How are things really going with you? To have those heart-to-heart conversations. Leading with love means that we provide discipline, we provide training, we provide a good example of what it looks like to love Jesus and to follow him. You know, maybe you, some, you are someone who grew up without a dad. Maybe you're one of those one in four that you experienced that, or maybe your dad was, was there, but he wasn't a godly leader. I still have some really good news for you. Even whether, whether you had a dad at home or you didn't, or maybe you had a godly father or you didn't, we're, we're all, all of us, we are all striving towards the same ideal, and it's not your dad or my dad. It's our heavenly father. God the Father is the good and loving Father that sets the standard. You notice that in, in, uh, in Hebrews when it talks about discipline. Yes, uh, fathers, they do their best to provide training and discipline, but then he goes right back to say, but, but God, God's the standard, not your dad, not my dad. They did their best. We're doing our best, but we're striving, we're striving to be like our Father in heaven, to lead in love like he leads in love. Those are the best practices that we find in him. And, and the in-the-flesh representation of God the Father is Jesus Christ. He's the standard for loving leadership that, that we all need to look to. The best dads are the ones doing their best to live a Jesus-centered life. When I think about the evil days that Amos lived in, maybe you feel the same way. It, it feels familiar. And the blame for a rotten culture, it falls on many of the same places today as it did back then. But I just keep coming back to this conviction that just because our culture has become rotten, just because our culture uh, it has become evil, it doesn't mean we have to be. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just save our souls 
from hell. It changes our hearts. It transforms our lives. And that includes our marriages. That includes our families. And maybe God's design for marriage and and the family sounds outdated or, or oppressive to a culture that has rejected God. It doesn't change the fact that it's still the ideal. It's what works. Even when we fall short of it, and I fall short of it way more often than I would care to admit, it's still worth coming back to. It's worth striving towards because we know God's design works. And we desperately need men to believe that. We need men to lead in the way of love. We need men who will stand firm. I, I have no idea uh, if, if we make it out of this as a country, like if things get turned around before the, the judgment of God falls on our country. I, I don't know if we're too far gone. You know, I, look at, I look at what Amos came and said to, to Israel, and he's like, it's done, it's, it's coming, it's, it's too far. And, and maybe that's us, maybe it gets turned around. I, I don't know. But I do know this, we don't have to be part of that. My family doesn't have to be part of that. Your family doesn't have to be part of it. We can't have families. We need men who will stand firm and say, you know what, you, you can do whatever it is you're gonna do, but as for me, as for my house, no, we're gonna serve the Lord. And my prayer is that we'll have men in our church specifically and, 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 and hopefully across the country in Christian churches that are preaching the gospel, that we'll have men that will stand and say that. Let me pray for you. Lord, thanks so much that we have had this opportunity to be together, and I thank you for your love and kindness, your grace in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for godly men that I know are in this, in this room that are just doing their best. We're not perfect, but men that are doing their best to to be a godly husband, to be a godly dad, to be a, a godly grandfather. I just thank you for them. And, and I pray that you would help us to keep coming back to that desire even when we fall short. I just pray over our marriages. I pray over our families. I pray over the, each one in this room. Lord, we, uh, we, we look around. We see what's going on. It doesn't mean that we have to follow where the world's going, that we, that we can stand firm and say, you know what, I believe what God says. I believe that his design is ideal. I believe that his design is what's best. And even when I fall short, I'm gonna keep coming back to it because I know it works because it comes from God. And we'll thank you for that. We thank you for your grace and mercy in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.